Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Holy are you, Lord. As we bow before you in these moments, we thank you for the privilege we have to come to your throne room by the blood of Jesus. We come with boldness because of the invitation that we have through the finished work of Christ. God, may we not take that lightly. May we approach you in a way that honors you and glorifies your name in what we do with our lives. Thank you for this time that we've had together already here today and uh, parent-child dedication in both services. Uh, Lord, being reminded of the blessing of life, having an opportunity to invest in life and to be a blessing to others. And I pray now as we turn our attention to your word that you would be our teacher, Holy Spirit. Help us understand what you would have us to understand in a way that honors you and transforms our lives. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was thinking about our parent-child dedication today and the one that we had the last time that we uh, took part in it. And then the number of new babies that are currently on the way. I was reminded of the blessing that God has given us, but also the sacred trust that he's given us uh, to be a church where families are encouraged and taught the truth and prayed for and blessed in every stage of life. And we have been uniquely blessed in recent years with a lot of new families, young families, as well as uh, some who have been with us for a long time, a lot of little ones who've come along. And we want to be faithful with what God has given us. And we want to be a church that puts this as a top priority, not just something else that we do from a ministry standpoint. And you have a commitment from me and from our church leadership that this is front and center of what we want to be about in helping people grow as disciples, as individuals, no matter what their situation is in life and then helping families and the little ones grow and come to know the Lord and, and live for him as well. So continue to pray for us in that regard. Thank you for your faithfulness, and we need people who are willing to invest and be servants uh, to be a blessing to these families as well, and uh, I know God's going to continue to work in that area. I want to speak to you today on this subject, family, the foundation of society. Now, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, where we'll look at a passage of Scripture, and then also Genesis chapter 2. I want to say at the outset of this message today that I'm going to be addressing some very uh, difficult issues, not difficult from the perspective of understanding right and wrong, or what is true and what is not true, but difficult in terms of the current times that we find ourselves living in. There's so much talk that goes on around these issues. Uh, there's a lot of confusion that sets in because of it. And I want to take the approach today of addressing some of what I'm going to address from a directly biblical perspective, from a foundation of truth, uh, and with uh, grace as we speak truth, and understanding that some of these issues hit very close to home for a number of our church families and try to help you think through this, what God's Word says about these issues, 
and what God's word says about the family so that we can honor him and we can go in the direction that he wants us to go in. The concept of family is of central importance in the Bible. The family was introduced by God in the very beginning, the marriage relationship before sin ever entered into the world. The family is the foundation of society, and because the family is the foundation of society, it should be promoted, nurtured, and protected. That said, family life is rapidly changing in our context. Two-parent households are on the decline in the United States as divorce, remarriage, and people living together outside of marriage are on the rise. Families are smaller now due to the growth of single-parent households and the overall drop in fertility. In the 1960s, babies typically arrived in a home with a married mother and father, and today more than four out of ten births occur with single moms or with women who are living with someone with whom they are not married. The number of homes in America with a traditional nuclear family of a married couple with children is now at its lowest point that it's been since 1959. Census data shows that 17.8% of the United States' 130 million households feature married parents with children under the age of 18, 17.8%. That is down from 40% in 1970. There are currently only 23.1 million American homes with nuclear families and over 37 million American adults live alone. So what we know is that families exist today in a rapidly changing culture. There's a man by the name of Ray Kurzweil who is described as a futurist. Uh, He at one time was the director of engineering at Google And he referenced the approaching 21st century, which we're now already 23 years into, and he said this, we are entering an age of acceleration because of the explosive power of exponential growth. The 21st century will be the equivalent to 20,000 years of progress at today's rate of progress. One century progressing at the rate of 20,000 years years compared to the overall record of history. Now, it certainly feels like he's right on that point. We all feel the unsettledness and the rapid change and the way nothing seems to be stable around us. And families are existing in this environment. And I want to say to you today, there are no perfect families, but God has a plan for every family. There are no perfect families, but God has a plan for every family. So no matter what status you find yourself in currently, God has a plan for you. God has a plan for the greater family unit that you're connected with. And God certainly has a plan for his church family and his global family in the kingdom of God. What can we learn about the family from the Bible? Let's look at the book of Genesis, the book of Origins. Genesis chapter 1 follows the seven days of creation in a chronological, organized way. Then Genesis 2 takes a step back and focuses on the day that God created man, the sixth day of creation and the relationship between man and woman. I begin reading in Genesis 1 and verse 26. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. Now we move to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20 says, The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. Before the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, verse 23, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Early in Genesis, in the book of Origins, we find God's design for family. Someone said that we know artists by their most important creations. Michelangelo by the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Beethoven by his fifth symphony. George Lucas by the Star Wars saga. Each masterpiece reveals something about the creator. And the same is true of God, except God created out of nothing. Ex nihilo. And especially in his design and purpose of the family, we learn some things about God and about us. We catch a glimpse of the artist at work by reading these passages of Scripture in the first two chapters of Genesis. The essential elements of family, marriage and parenthood, reveal God's character. The love between a husband and a wife provides insight into Christ's devotion to his church. The ups and the downs of family life reflect God's patience and love toward us as his children. And even after the fall of man, when sin entered into the world, God continued his plan for families. And he spoke prophetically of salvation that would come through the seed of the woman. So in this time that we have together today, let's consider three principles for families from Genesis 1 and 2. Principle number one. Families are to reflect the image of God. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. In this phrase, let us make man in our image, we have an early allusion to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is one God, but he exists in three co-equal and co-eternal persons. One in essence and three in person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when we use the phrase, the image of God, it's a phrase, it's two words that 
uh, are anchored in the scripture. We also would say the Imago Dei, which is from Latin, translated into English as the image of God, meaning in likeness or in similarity to God. People were created in the image of God in their moral, spiritual, and intellectual capacities. That's what it means in the likeness or in similarity to God. Now, this means that people are different than any other creature that God created. In personal agency, in the ability to rationally understand, in the ability to interact with others in the world, we reflect the image of God. And out of all that God created, only one creature, man, is said to have been created in the image of God. The fact that man is made in the image of God means that we are like him and we also represent him in the world. Now, you remember when Adam and Eve sinned, moral purity was lost, it was corrupted, it was broken. But even so, people are still made in the image of God. The New Testament affirms this in James chapter 3 and verse 9, where it says that people generally, not only believers, are made in the likeness of God. The image of God still persists in sinful men and women, even though it's marred, and even though it sometimes seems like a caricature or even a witness against itself. Nevertheless, the image of God that we all bear is wondrous, and it holds eternal potential. It is through redemption in Christ that we are reconciled to God, and we have the hope of what is to come. That even though the image of God in which we were created was broken and is fallen because of sin, it will be fully restored in the future. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 49 says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. If we are not rightly related to God, we cannot live a life with eternal purpose. And that's where redemption in Christ comes into focus. Now, there is a very straightforward part of this passage of Scripture that I want to focus on for a few moments. He created them male and female. Biologically, a male has one X and one Y chromosome. Biologically, a female has two X chromosomes. This is not a complex concept, but our spiritual enemy is the author of confusion. To further confuse these issues, the spiritual enemy has infiltrated churches and impacted people who call themselves Christians, who teach something that is far different from what the biblical truth presents. Further, in the past 20 years, we have seen an explosion of this confusion. Now, some of what I'm about to say, I did a bit of research on because I want to present the issue fairly and accurately, considering what it is that we're dealing with in the contrarian positions, and to help us understand how to approach this from a biblical perspective. The past 20 years has seen an explosion of the homosexual agenda and gender confusion, and it has accelerated in the last few years. A segment of society currently promotes 
LGBTQIA+. Here's what that represents in my understanding. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer or questioning, asexual or an ally of the community if you look at particular representations of this. And the plus represents non-binary, pansexual, gender fluid, and more. Now, I looked up the categories of gender that are promoted so that I could give an accurate representation. I don't particularly recommend that you do this, but you can uh, validate what I'm saying here by looking it up for yourself. And in the source that I looked at, there are 105 gender identities listed, which speaks to the absolute absurdity of all of this. The contrarian argument against the Bible is as follows. Biological sex does not determine gender identity. There are many possible gender identities to choose from. According to this line of thinking, sex is a label that is assigned at birth by a doctor, which is now currently frowned upon by some. And gender is defined as a set of thoughts, behaviors, or actions that one is expected to have. Now, we would have to say that the promotion of these ideas has been wildly successful. Statistics reflect now in the United States, as many as half of all millennials believe that gender exists on a spectrum that should not be limited to just male and female. And that's millennials. That's not speaking of the generation uh, that's coming behind them. If we disagree with these categories from a theological, biblical, or historical perspective, then we're called pejorative names and we're put in certain categories because we're holding to what the Bible is teaching. And I want you to know that one can fundamentally hold to the biblical and theological truth of the position from the scripture and none of those things be true. So I want to come back to the statement that's made in the scripture for face value. He created them male and female. God has spoken on this issue, and he has spoken clearly. This is a biblical issue. If you do not agree with that, then you have to take the position that the Bible is not true. That's the position that you're taking. There are two biological sexes, male and female, and gender corresponds with this. Gender identity in the creative order should follow biological sex. There is no indication that our gender identity should differ from our biological sex in the created order. Anything that is beyond this or is outside of this boundary in Scripture is a result of the fall. It is outside of the created order. It is not God's creative intent. Genesis 2 goes on to describe the marriage relationship as intended by God, with man and woman becoming one flesh. Now, one of the primary arguments that you'll hear when you start talking about these issues is that Jesus never had anything to say about gender. Jesus didn't have anything to say about um, the biology of it or sexuality of it or anything that goes along with it. And I want to refute that from the Scripture. And here's what Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4 says. This is Jesus 
reiterating and reinforcing what I just told you in the creation order. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them, here we go again, male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Gender confusion and family confusion arises from the brokenness of sin. It is fueled by artificial social constructs, and it is at the core a spiritual issue. And unless you've been hiding somewhere and are not aware of this, the gap between the biblical view of humanity and sexuality and the secular view is growing wider day by day. The secular view is seen as the enlightened view. And as Christians, we must anchor our understanding in Scripture. If you don't teach your children about the biblical truth on these issues, the world is going to teach them the contrarian perspective every single day. It's going to be every day, all the time, in everything that they see and read and encounter. And as we interact with the world, we should do so with clear convictions and we should do so with grace and truth. Every single human being has intrinsic value and worth to God. It should be loved and respected and treated with dignity. And that says to us as Christians, even when we are encountering with pe people who don't believe the Scripture or who have twisted the Scripture or are taking a position that is outside of the creation order, even if they are not treating us with kindness and dignity and respect, we should treat them with kindness and dignity and respect while at the same time holding firmly to what our convictions are. You can still do that in this world. And that should be our witness in the world as families reflect the image of God. A family functioning in a healthy way with a strong foundation ordered according to God's design is a reflection of God's grace in the world. Principle number two, families are to be fruitful and multiply. God said they will rule. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. To rule over the earth is to have dominion over it. It indicates a delegated authority to people from God, along with a corresponding responsibility to rule well, to be good stewards. So to subdue it means to bring it under cultivation, to be a good steward of it with accountability to God for our faithfulness. Having been created in the image of God, Adam and Eve were to use the vast resources of creation in service to God, themselves, and to others. And only God could decree this because he's the one who created it. And he's the one who ultimately rules over all of it. Now, you also note that in the current times that we find ourselves in, at least from some perspectives, people are seen as the enemy of the world, as though we are the enemy of the world as we know it. We are not. We are God-intended recipients of the, res of the resources of the world to rule over it, to have dominion over it, and to subdue it. And I believe what the Scripture teaches 
no matter what the current hysteria is or no matter what the current cultural posturing is, Genesis 8:22 will hold true. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. You can mark it down. It's absolutely certain because God keeps his promises. Further, we are to worship the creator and not the creation. That's what got people in trouble early on. Many people, according to Romans 1 verse 25, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what had been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. And in that, we understand that God is over it all. He's entrusted to us a certain responsibility and stewardship, and we're to use it well. And to be fruitful and multiply is God's plan for more people to share in fellowship with him. So think about it this way. God's creation is intended to be productive, to feed people, and to be full of people. Creation itself is also affected by sin and the fall. We know that it groans and it cries out for renewal. But we are blessed to be a part of God's creation. And further, we know that children are a blessing. Psalm 127 says that children are a heritage from the Lord. And we see them as a blessing that God has given of life on the earth. Not as a problem to be solved, but as a blessing to be received and to be cared for. Not everybody's going to marry. It's always important in a family message, a biblical perspective, to make that point clear. There is a calling and a provision for singleness in the scripture. It's a unique calling for those that God places it on. And that's up to him and up to the person to be able to discern that. I also want to say not everyone will have children for a variety of reasons. But not being married or not having children does not make you incomplete. You are an image bearer. You have been created in the image of God. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are complete in him. And don't listen to any other narrative that tells you something else. Because your life is to be lived for the glory of God. And that's true for all of us. And if there are some particularities in your life that bring you to a place where your life is a little bit different than others, you need to embrace it and you need to ask God what his purpose is in that for you so that you can bring him glory with the way you live your life. And the blessing to be fruitful in other places in scripture is a spiritual metaphor for the blessings that grow out of righteous living. So God's will for your life and for my life, for all of us, is to bear fruit because families are to be fruitful and to multiply. Principle number three, families are to advance the kingdom of God. Part of this fruitfulness that we find here and having dominion over the earth, part of human flourishing in the world is doing our part in this life that God has given us, being a part of his kingdom work. Now, you know that the big story of scripture is that God created, man fell, and God is reconciling the world to himself. And that's true. Jesus promised that the church 
uh, would win in the end. We would prevail. Nothing, even the gates of hell, cannot come against it. And we know that that's true globally even now. The church is advancing, especially in places like the global south. But in this, we know that the picture is very different in much of Western Europe and certainly in the United States. Let me share some recent research with you that will wake you up and will help you understand how significant it is that we be about advancing the kingdom of God in our context. Among recent research, uh, Americans born before 1946 who self Uh, identify along these lines, say that they are Christians 65% of the generation born before 1946. They can articulate the basics of the gospel. I don't know if they're born again or not, but they would say that they're born again, 65%. Go to the next generation among those born from 1946 to 1964. That number drops from 65% to 35%. But now let's go to another generation among those born between 1965 and 1976. That's my generation. It falls to 15%. But let's go one more step. Among those born between 1977 and 1994, only 4% identify themselves as Christians and have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. And this does not take into account the youngest generation that is now coming of age. So from the first generation to the fourth one that I mentioned, the drop went from 65% to 4%. Here's what this tells us. We are losing our children, and part of the reason we're losing our children is because of the collapse of the Christian family. Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. God can use you and your family to glorify him in the world and to advance his kingdom. But I want to give you a warning here. This cannot be accomplished on a part-time basis. The average churchgoer attends church currently maybe twice a month. Of course, there's a core that's much more faithful than that. But the average churchgoer attends about twice a month. And I understand this is only one snippet of an insight into your overall life and how you're living and what Christ means to you and the significance of your faith. But it is a marker. And I want to work from this marker. So that means that only a handful of hours at best are you and your family and your children being discipled through the ministry of the church. Current studies also show that teens are spending an average of eight hours a day on social media. A day. I think that might be a little bit low. But here's the obvious question. If you're only occasionally engaged and your children are being influenced by the culture the entirety of their day every day, who's discipling them? You are fooling yourself. You've got your head in the sand if you think that an occasional engagement with your family is going to produce a spiritual disciple. It's just not going to happen. It's not any big secret why we're losing young people. It's it's not a big surprise that these things are happening. 
And further, when those opportunities are there for your young people, especially as they age and they get in those teen years, and it's just really not that important to your family. It's a secondary involvement at best if you don't have something else that's more of a priority for you. And then when they get out of your home and they go out on their own and they don't want much to do with the church, it's not a secret why. It's not a surprise. Nobody should be surprised by these things. So what that says to us is we've got to come back to the core of being sure that we are teaching our families the gospel, that they understand the great commission and the great commandment of loving God and loving neighbor, that we're teaching a biblical worldview. Because if you're not instilling that biblical worldview in them as you're going, if you're not teaching and, and helping them understand how to interact with these issues in the culture, they're going to be absolutely obliterated. They, they don't stand a chance. And you have the responsibility and, I would say, a great opportunity to instill that biblical worldview in them. And our families need people who are real examples of people who are living out their faith. Because your children are likely to do what you do as much as they are to do what you say. Families are to advance the kingdom of God. And I want to close with this statement. It's been said in one form or the other by a number of different people through the years, but this is mine as it came to mind. As the family goes, so goes the church. As the family goes, so goes society. Now hear me clearly. Sin is at the root of all problems and societal ills. We have political problems. It's a sin issue. We have educational problems. It's a sin issue. We have relationship problems. It's a sin issue. And for all of that, there's only one spiritual solution. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ and a living relationship with God. It's the only answer. If we're seeking our solution uh, anywhere else, we're chasing after fool's gold. And it's not going to be the solution that we're seeking. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we come toward a close of this service. As our heads are bowed and we come toward a conclusion of today, listen, I know these are some uh, unpleasant topics mixed in with the wonderful gift of family and relationships. But it's the reality that we're living in. And my question for you is, are you approaching these things from a biblical perspective, from the truth of God's word, or are you being captured? Is your mind and your heart being arrested by the world and the culture around you? It's a battle between light and darkness. And I'm challenging you to walk in the light, to walk in the truth, to think through these things biblically and to live as people who value all people and who show respect and dignity to all people, but at the same time are people of conviction who are not ashamed of the gospel and who are not ashamed of the truth. I don't know why you came today. Maybe you're a 
mom here and you've never met Jesus, today would be a good day to trust in him by faith. Maybe you came for your mom and you wanted to be a, a blessing to her today and show your love for her and you've never met Jesus. Today's your day to say yes to him and to embrace the hope that is found only in Christ. But then I want you to take just a moment, uh, whatever your particular situation is in life, there might be a burden that you're dealing with right now that you're facing. Maybe nobody else even knows about it. It might be at a tipping point. It might be at a point of breaking and, and you feel like you don't know where to turn. I'm here to tell you, you can turn to God and he'll help you. Whatever it is you're dealing with, you can bring it to him. You can cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. And I want you to be encouraged today by the hope that is found in him. Lift up that burden to God and ask him to help you. Ask him to give you peace in your heart. Encouragement and counsel by the Holy Spirit. And he'll be faithful to do that. Father, thank you for our relationship with you in Christ. Thank you that we're a part of an eternal family. And that eternal family is someday going to gather around the throne in heaven and we're going to bring praise and honor to your name because you're the only one that is worthy. Thank you for relationships that you give us on this earth. And God, we're, we're facing some, some complicated issues that have been real issues since the fall, since sin entered into the world. And we know that Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the hope. He's our strength. So we bring these issues to you. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. May we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ with grace and truth. And may we be your witness in the world in the same way. No matter how we're spoken to or how we're spoken of, that we would be representatives of Jesus in the way that we speak to others and the way we interact with them in the world as we share your message of hope. Bless this time now, Lord, as we close out our service. I thank you for each individual that's here, each family that's represented. I pray your richest blessing on them, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.